All right, everybody, if you can find a seat, please. Sorry to interrupt the extending of friendship. Good morning, guys. Uh, welcome to Providence. My name is Eric Ripley. I serve as the Director of Assimilation and Discipleship here. Uh, I just want to thank you guys for being here this morning and choosing to make us a part of your week. Uh, here at Providence, uh, we are formed around a single and compelling vision, which is to make the gospel of Jesus unignorable in our city. Uh, and to that end, we open our Bibles every week because we believe the Bible has everything we need to know, worship, and obey Jesus Christ. Um, so today, uh, we are starting a new sermon series called Love God, Love People, The Heart of Discipleship, in which we will discuss the greatest commandment in Scripture and how it shapes the life of a believer. Uh, so our text will be found in the book of Mark, chapter 12, uh, verse 28 through 34 today. So if you do have your Bibles, please turn there. If you don't have one this morning, uh, we should have a hardback black one in one of the seats in front of you in your row. Uh, you can grab that. If you don't own a Bible, you can keep that. It's our gift to you. Uh, if, you, do, you can, if you do own one, you can return that after service. Uh, so once again, Mark 12, starting in verse 28, uh, if you get there or when you get there, uh, if you're able to this morning, you can please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 28. Hear the word of the Lord. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all your heart and with all your understanding and with all your strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hey, good morning. Hey, welcome to Providence. You guys look good this morning. You should be encouraged. Yeah, thank you. Something like that. Yeah, something along those lines is good. Whenever someone gives you a compliment, that's okay, though. Uh, I'm not looking for any reciprocation, I promise. Um, I'm, I'm totally kidding. Hey, my name is Joseph, and I serve on staff here at Providence. If this is your first time, I want to let you know that we are grateful that you're here. And uh, as Eric said earlier, today we are beginning a new teaching series entitled Love God and Love People. And we're going to be exploring what we believe is the heart of discipleship, uh, what it means to be more fully formed by the Holy Spirit into lovers of God and lovers of people. And so, uh, as I say nearly every week, whether you're a Christian, not sure you're a Christian, or sure you're not a Christian, our prayer, our hope is the same for you anytime you come into the sanctuary here at Providence, and that is that you would see through the preaching of God's Word, through the singing of songs, through the reading of the Scriptures, that Christ is worthy of all praise, honor, and glory, and that he is to be desired as God of the universe. And so to that end, would you guys join me in praying? Father, we come before your throne of grace and we humble ourselves in your sight. We recognize, God, that we need you so much. Father, we cannot do what it is that needs to be done in this room this morning as your word is proclaimed. And Father, that is we cannot see most clearly the beauty and the wonder and the glory of Christ without the help of the Holy Spirit. And so we ask for the Spirit to come and to illuminate the Word, to make it clear, to make it compelling, and to convict our hearts, God, where we need to be convicted, to comfort our hearts, where we need to be comforted. Most importantly, God, to glorify your Son, Christ Jesus, to edify your people, and to make the gospel unignorable. And we pray this in Jesus' name. No one said... Amen. Okay, so like I said, we're going to be talking about discipleship this summer, and why do that? Um, why would we spend an entire summer talking about discipleship? In particular, the command to love God, love people as the heart of discipleship. And the reason that we chose to do this is because we have come to understand and agree as a team of leaders in the church that discipleship is one of the most assumed but least understood matters in the church, right? When you hear the word disciple, 
or discipling or discipleship. Uh, that sounds like a very Christian word, and, and, and for many of us, we know that that word disciple is, should be synonymous with the term Christian. To be a Christian is to be a disciple, right? It's a follower of Christ. That's what to be a disciple is. And so discipleship is that process by which we grow more and more into the likeness and image of Jesus. Amen? And when you become a Christian, I hope this isn't a surprise to you. When you become a Christian, you weren't made like Jesus just like that, right? Uh, like, you became a Christian, and the Scripture says that you were dead in your sins and trespasses, and you were made alive, and you were made a new creation. But even though you were made a new creation, you weren't made fully new, right? There's still sin in your life, and there's still things that affect your relationship with God, and, and so there's growth that still has to occur after you become a Christian, right? Like I said, I hope that's not a surprise, but if it is, welcome to church this morning, okay? Um, so discipleship is that process where after we become a Christian, we, we are slowly but surely transformed by the Holy Spirit more into the likeness and image of Jesus, because that is the heart of God, right? Whenever Adam and Eve fell in the garden, whenever they sinned and rebelled against God, they were, of course, God, they, they were the prototypical humans. They were the image bearers. They bared God's image in a way that was not, when they were created, that was not uh, tarnished or, or affected by sin at all. And of course, when they sinned, the image of God in them was not lost, but it was certainly broken and fractured. And so we know from Scripture, and I don't want to get too theologically deep at this point in the sermon, but we know from Scripture that though the first Adam failed, the second Adam, which was Christ, did not fail. He came fully God, fully man, perfectly obeyed God. He passed temptation in the wilderness where Adam and Eve failed temptation in the garden, right? We know that Jesus was perfect in every single way. And so the process of discipleship is essentially God forming us back into that image that he desired for us to always have. That image that can be seen most clearly and perfectly in his son, Christ Jesus. That perfect image of what a perfect human would look like and so that's what discipleship is like. And we know that we're not going to get there this side of glory, right? We're not going to become perfect this side of glory. We will be perfected one day whenever God glorifies us and whenever God makes all things new. But nonetheless, after our salvation and in between our glorification, there is this biblical term that's called sanctification, which is that process by which we grow more into the likeness and image of Jesus. And what we know that the Bible tells us is this is actually the will of God for our lives, that we would be sanctified and that we would be conformed into the likeness and image of Jesus. And so this is what discipleship is all about. If you're a Christian and you didn't know this already, this is what you signed up for. Okay, you signed up to become more like Jesus. Oftentimes, especially in a context like ours, in a community like ours, we think that becoming a Christian is really just about um, experiencing all of the benefits or all of the blessings that God might give us, but not really ever having to experience any hardships. There's a misnomer, a mis, uh, misunderstanding. We think when we become Christian, everything in our life is going to get better. But the Bible actually says the complete opposite. When you become a Christian, things in your life are actually going to get much harder because you're now going to be persecuted for becoming a Christian. You're going to, you're going to endure hardships and insults and things like that for becoming a Christian. And so there are things in our lives that are actually going to get difficult. But what the beautiful promise of the scriptures is that even those things God uses to shape us and conform us into the image of his son, Jesus. Amen. But this is what you signed up for when you became a Christian. You signed up. Not just to receive all of the benefits from God, which you do receive, but you also signed up for this process of being shaped and conformed into the image of Jesus. And God is going to use the things in your life, and God is going to use them, which will be the thrust of what we're talking about uh, this, su this summer. God will use the church, God will use people in your life even to help shape you into the likeness and image of Jesus. But he does that, he does that through uh, which is why we're talking about the great commandment this morning. He does that through addressing our love. He does that by addressing what we love and who we love and how we love and the depth of our loves and the intensity of our loves and the direction of our loves. God shapes us into the likeness and image of Jesus through our loves. Now, the reason that this matters is if that's true, that God desires to shape us into the image of his son, and that is the process of discipleship, then we have to understand that the reason that God addresses our loves is because in order for us to be shaped into the image of Jesus, God isn't just trying to shape us externally. 
okay? He's not, let me put it this way, he's not just trying to shape our behavior. He's not just trying to shape how we act, or he's not just trying to shape what we do, he's trying to shape our whole being, our minds, our hearts, our soul, as we see in the Bible, our strength. He wants everything to be directed towards him and in passionate pursuit of him. He wants our entire lives to be reshaped and reformed. And he does that. The, re- the way that he does that, though, is through love. Love is a very important and obviously central theme in the Bible, specifically in the gospel. And love is at the heart of discipleship. And it's important for us before we go into this passage to understand that whenever we talk about God reshaping us into the image of his son, we cannot be shaped into the image of Jesus unless we love him. We have to love God if we're going to be shaped into the image of God. We have to become more fully formed, devoted lovers of God and the Bible says of people as well, of our neighbor. Why? I know this is a lofty concept, but this is what we're going to spend the whole summer uh, trying to explain, is that in reality, we become more and more like that which we love. In the Bible, there's, there, there are these two paradigms that, that constantly play out, the love of the world and the love of God, Right? You see this in the New Testament where, where this is basically explained as the world. Do not love the world or the things of this world, right? All that's in the world is the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, right? This is 1 John. So do, do not love the world. But even in the Old Covenant, we see this in the Old Testament where God is constantly calling his people to not fall in love with the pagan nations around them. Like he, he, the, the parallel is often Babylon. Not to love Babylon, but to love God. Not to love the way of Babylon, but to love God. In the New Testament, not to love the world, but to love God. And even in the, the book of Revelation, uh, John the Revelator picks up on Old Testament language whenever, once again, he compares uh, the world to Babylon, the city of Babylon. And so over and over and over again, we see these two paradigms at play, that there is a way in which we can devote our, lo- de- devote our lives to loving God or to loving the world. Now, what I want you to see is that the reason that it's important for us to understand that we become like what we love is if we love the world more than we love God, guess what we become more like? The world. If we love God more than we love the world, then guess who we become more like? God, right? So that statement, like I said, even though it's kind of a philosophical statement, you become like that which you love, it bears out and it is biblically true. The reason that God is after our heart so much is because he knows that whatever direction our heart is pointed is that which we are going to become the most like. If, we are point, if our hearts are pointed towards the things of this world, if our hearts are pointed towards material possessions and acquiring things and all of those things, and, and, and if our hearts are pointed towards um, ourselves or, or any of those things, more than they are pointed and directed towards God, then we are going to become more like the world and less like God. But if our hearts are directed towards God consistently over and over and over again, then we become more like him. And this is what's happening in discipleship. Discipleship is God teaching us to order our loves rightly. Some of you were here, some of you weren't, and I would encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon if you can. At the beginning of the year, we went through a sermon series called Revival, um, and we looked at, basically we, we spent seven weeks, I believe it was, um, talking about revival, and there was, a, there was one of the sermons in there that I, think, I, I taught it um, where we looked at Jesus' call to discipleship in which he, he said, unless you hate your father, mother, your entire family, and come after me, then you cannot be my disciple. And what we basically said in that, we clarified, Jesus isn't actually calling us to hate anybody. That would be antithetical to the rest of his message, which is to love everybody, right? What he was saying is, and this is like a, a merism, a, a grammatical um, uh, a, a merism that, that was used in that time where um, basically whenever a rabbi would say you need to hate this, in contrast to this, it was basically saying your love for this thing needs to be substantially less than this thing that I'm saying. Um, your love for me needs to be so intense that everything else gets ordered under it as if it were hatred. And so what Jesus is after whenever he calls his disciples to himself and whenever he says, I want you to, to come after me, he's essentially saying, I want you to order your loves rightly. I want you to love me more than you love anything else. And that is the beginning. Now listen, that is the doorway into discipleship. Jesus says, if you're not willing to go on that journey, 
in learning to love me with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength, then you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing, now this is important, friends, if you're not willing to go on that journey, then you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to at least try with all of your heart, mind, soul, and strength to love me with everything that you have, then you're not willing to be my disciple. Don't even bother coming after me. So that's what he's telling them. And that's why this talking about what we love is so important whenever it comes to discipleship is because that is what God is after. He is after our love. He's after our affections. He's after our desires. He is after our motivations. He's after the sum total of who we are. He wants us to be holy, formed beings that love him with everything that we have. He wants to put us back together where sin has broken us and where the world has torn at us, and he wants to restore us into his likeness and image, but he wants to do that through love, and I think this is incredible. So to get into our passage, we've got a few points, and I'll try and keep this as brief as possible, the, and, and they're really simple points. The first is we're going to look at what this passage is calling us to do. The second, we're going to look at uh, why we struggle to do it, and the third point we're going to look at is how can we ever learn to do it. So first, let's look at what this passage is calling us to do, and so let's go back and look at it. So Jesus is uh, standing in the temple court, just so you know, just for the sake of context, Jesus is standing in the temple court. In Mark's account, this would have been very close to the end of Jesus' life. Um, this is actually situated right in the middle of Passion Week, and so uh, there's a lot going on in Jerusalem at this time, and Jesus is standing there, and basically he's being questioned over and over and over again. This is after the triumphal entry, you know, where Jesus comes in, they wave the palms and branches at him, and he's being questioned over and over and over again, and he's being questioned so many times because they're essentially trying to trick him into um, uh, proclaiming some sort of heresy so that way they can rightly have him con condemned and crucified. But so they keep asking him questions to try and trip him up, and so here's one of the questions that he was asked in verse 28. It says, and one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is this, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, there is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe says, you are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all of the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all the burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Now, a little bit, of context, a little bit more context of what's going on here is because these men are consistently trying to trip Jesus up and, and, and get him to say the wrong thing, uh, they keep coming at him and asking him questions that are kind of central to Jewish teaching and practice at that time, uh, the teaching and practice that was common amongst the Israelites at that time. And so they think, okay, if I can get Jesus to flub up the law, then I know. Like, that's a great place to start in getting this man condemned for, for his heresies. But so... He goes at Jesus at what would have been the most central aspect of the people. You had, we've talked about this a lot this, this trimester. We've talked about the centrality of the temple and the centrality of the Torah in the life of God's people, right? Uh, that there was the temple and there was the Torah. There was a place of worship and there was the word of God. Um, and the word of God directed how they worship, but nonetheless, those two things were central. And so there they are in the temple, and he's like, if I can get him to mess up the Torah, and, and get it wrong, then I know, like, we're going somewhere. We, we, can, we can get him to trip up. But so he thinks that he's going to get Jesus to trip up. And Jesus, you know, standing right in the middle of the temple, which is the epicenter of worship at that time, or right, right around the temple, which is the epicenter of worship at that time, he asks him, what's the most important thing? Is it the sacrifices? Is it the rituals, the rites, priesthood? What is it? Like, what's the most important thing? And Jesus draws them all the way back to Deuteronomy, and he, and he lays out the Shema, which is the, the like Hebrew term for that command. He says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one Lord, and you should love him with all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength. And the second is like it, and you should love your neighbor as yourself. And so Jesus basically says, if you want to summarize the entire Old Testament law, and you want to summarize it in a way that, um, <laughs> that is true, accurate, 
and um, does not deviate from the purpose and intent of God, then I would say this. I would say that you need to love God. You need to understand that God is one, and you also need to love him with everything that you have. And so the scribe fails in tripping Jesus up, so he essentially agrees with him, you're right, it, it, this, this is what it is. Um, and so Jesus tells the man, you're not far from the kingdom. He says, after that, no one dared to answer him, ask him any more questions. Why? Because what was going on in this time was a whole lot of religious activity. Sacrifices, priests, all of these things, a whole lot of religious activity was going on. But Jesus knew that the heart of what was wrong, forgive the pun, the heart of what was wrong with God's people at that time is that they had religious practice, but they didn't have devotion. They knew how to do all the right things, but they weren't doing it from the right motivations. They were still offering up the sacrifices. They still had the priesthood in place. They were still doing all of the things that they had been commanded to do. But we know from Scripture, because Jesus himself had rebuked the Pharisees earlier in saying this, he said, these people honor me with their lips, but their what is far from me? Their heart is far from me. And we see this not only in the New Testament, Jesus constantly picks up this argument with the Pharisees that you're doing the right things, but you're doing it for the wrong reasons. We saw this in the Old Testament as well, where God says to his people in Isaiah chapter one, he says, I'm sick of your sacrifices, I'm sick of your burnt offerings, I'm sick of your Sabbaths and your new moons, I'm sick of all of that stuff. Why? Because you have neglected it, or you have neglected the very reason that I've called you to do all of those things. You're doing it, but your doing is disconnected from your motives where your motives are wrong, your motives are not centered on that which I have called them to be centered on, which is love of me and love of people. And so he's calling them back to that. So why ask him no more questions? Don't touch that subject, Jesus. That's a sensitive subject for us. That's a sensitive subject for us. Now, before I explain this any further, I, I, I wanna ask us this question. Is that a sensitive subject for us? Like for us in this room, do we know when we sit here that there are things that we're doing in our lives that are very Christian-like? You know, we, we go to church on Sunday mornings and maybe we attend a home group or maybe we give tithes and offerings or we serve on a team on Sunday mornings or um, we try to be good neighbors. But we know deep down that that is not connected to a love for God, a true, vibrant, deep sense of love for God and love for people. Is this a sensitive subject for us? Can I be honest? It's a sensitive subject for me. It's a very sensitive subject for me. Even as a preacher of God's word, as I stand up here convicted, that I know that there are many things that I find myself doing that are not rooted in a motivation of love for God or love for people, and it convicts me. Both things that are very Christian-y, you know, like I just said earlier, uh, and things that are not, things that don't reflect God's heart for his people at all that I find myself doing, and I wonder why. Why can't I just love God with all of my heart, mind, soul, and strength? Why can't I do that? I'm getting ahead of myself. So Jesus calls him very clearly back to what was the central command of God's people in Deuteronomy, to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, or heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the reason this is important for us to understand is because, like I said earlier, we are loving creatures. Um, we are beings that are driven by desire. We are people that are driven by motivation and passion. Um, we are, let me put it to you this way, um, we are desiring creature, creatures first and then rational creatures second. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you have done something that you did not want to do? or not done something that you wanted to do, and sat there and wondered, why is that? Right? Like, you know the right thing to do, but you just don't do it. It's because your mental faculties, your intellect, your thought process, is not, oftentimes, not strong enough to direct your motives. Your motives go deeper than that. The things that motivate you to get up and off the couch and to do the right thing or to not do the wrong thing, right? All of those things are, are, are deeply motivational. They sit at the center and the core of who we are. We are desiring creatures before we are thinking creatures. I could go really philosophical here. I won't. I want to make it clear that we are not 
primarily thinking beings. We are not even primarily feeling beings, okay? I want to make a distinction here. Feelings are different than motivations and motives. Feelings are the the things that we have and emotions are the things that we have kind of up here. Our responses to things that happen to us, motivations are the things that drive us out into the world and make us do the things that we do. But we're not primarily thinking beings. We're not primarily emotional beings. And we're not primarily doing beings. Like we're not just driven by willpower alone. You know, some of you are. You're like, I'm a one on the Enneagram. I'm a willpower person. But okay, I get it. We are created, though, to be loving beings, to be affectionate beings, to be motivated beings, to be desirous beings. And what shapes our thoughts and our emotions and our will will shape our entire lives. And what will shape our thoughts, our emotions, and our will is that which we love. The thing that you love will consume your thoughts. The thing that you love will consume your will. The thing that you love will consume your emotions, will it not? The thing that you desire the most will consume all of those things. It will shape all of those things. It will direct all of those things. But one of the things that I want us to notice in this passage is that Jesus doesn't equate love to something that is done by our hearts, our soul, our minds, or our strength. He doesn't equate love to something that is done by those. He says that we should love God with those things. We should love God with our minds. We should love God with our souls. We should love God with our hearts. We should love God with our strength. And we should love our neighbors as ourselves. So we should demonstrate our love for God by those things, with those things, through those things. But those things are not equated to love. Those are the things by which we love God, that we demonstrate our love. Is everyone with me? He calls us to love God with our hearts, which in the Hebrew world, the heart was kind of the control center of your life. It was like the core of your identity, the heart. Uh, we, we, today, we think of the heart as kind of here. There, the heart was kind of like the gut, the gut. It was like the guttural sense. It was that core of, 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 of your motives and your motivations. And whenever Jesus says that we should love him with all of our hearts, he's saying we should love him with the core of who we are, the core of our identity, the very core of our being, at the deepest part of who we are. That's why I think Jesus starts there, starts with our heart. We should love God with our heart. And he says we should love God with our soul. Now, a lot of um, Greek scholars believe that heart and soul are are pretty much paralleled and connected with one another. Um, But soul would have been something that that the, uh, the Hebrew people certainly would have understood, and, but the soul is more so the seed of your thoughts, your affections, and your will, your mind, your emotions, and your willpower. But Jesus goes, he kind of keeps going even further. He says, I want you to love me with your heart. I want you to love me with your soul. I want you to love me with your mind. I actually want you to love me with your thoughts. I want you to love me with, with your desires. I want you to love me with your thoughts. I want you to love me with your motivations. I want you to love me with all of those things. And he goes even further and he says, and I want you to love me with all of your strength. With your strength. I think I said this before in one of my previous sermons not too long ago that uh, drawing attention to this passage, but that whenever uh, Jesus recalls Deuteronomy, when you go back and you read uh, kind of the Hebrew translation of that word strength, the best way that we can translate it into English is the word very. God says, I want you to love me with all of your very. Like, what is that? Not V-A-R-Y, V-E-R-Y. He's saying, I want you to love me with all of your very-ness. Which is another way of saying, I want you to love me with all that you have. With everything that you have. This includes your body, This includes your time. This includes your talent. This includes your resources. I want you to love me with your veriness. I want you to love me with all that I have given you at your disposal. So just in case we think Jesus didn't leave a stone unturned or the Lord didn't leave a stone unturned, he goes ahead and just levels us all right there and says, in case you thought that there was a compartment of your life that I didn't want you to love me with, I'm going to go ahead and put it out there and say, I want you to love me with everything that you have, even that which is in your hand even that which is in your wallet, even that which is in your bank account, even that which is parked in your garage, I want you to love me with that too. 
do I do that? You know, like, how do I do that? I fail at that miserably every single day. And then he just keeps going at us, right? Right there, whenever you're already leveled, you're just like, oh my goodness, am I really gonna have to love God with all of my mind, all of my soul, all of my heart, all of my strength, everything that I have? Do you want me to love you with everything that I have? you want me to love you with my kids and my job and my car and my motorcycle that I don't have anymore? you want me to love you with all of those things, right? Sorry, vulnerable moment. Yes, he wants us to love us with everything. These are not different compartments of being to love God with. This is the call of God to love him with everything that we are and all that we have. He leaves no stone unturned. And then he goes even further and says, and if that weren't enough, I want you to learn to love your neighbor as yourself. And that's where it gets even harder, right? Why the... Why? Why, in, the, in the parable of the Samaritan, people were they're very concerned about, well, who is my neighbor, you know? Like, who, who actually are you calling me to love here? Because some people in my life are very difficult to love. But again, Jesus leaves no stone unturned. Whenever we, we look at neighbor, neighbor is basically anyone that's in our vicinity that has need, or anyone that's in our vicinity that we have the ability to help and love. So basically, anyone that you come in contact with in your daily life, God calls you to love them in a way in which you would love yourself. Now, I know in a culture where we talk about low self-esteem and things like that, people are often like, well, that's pretty easy because I don't love myself that much. Um, here's, here's, you know, where like the, the cardinal sin is low self-esteem, but here's, here's what we're, we're, we're really getting at. Whenever he calls us to love other people as we love ourselves, he's basically calling us to love them with as much intention passion, depth, concern, commitment, and fidelity as we show towards ourselves in any given area of our lives. As much as we like to protect ourselves and keep ourselves preserved from struggle or trial or anything like that, as much as we like to see our own selves flourish and get what we want in life, as much as we desire to see things in our lives go well for us, God says, I want you to love your neighbor just as much as you love that, as, as you love yourself. I want you to care for people just as much as you care for you. <laughs> right? This just, it, it seems like there's no end to this. It's, it's how, is this how is this gonna end up? How are we gonna ever be able to do this? Before we get there, I wanna, I wanna address something, though. I want us to note that this is not something, Jesus is not talking about love in a way in which we talk about love. We talk about love almost completely in an emotive way. Like, we, we, we it's the Valentine's Day aspect of our culture, right? Love is equated to emotion and feeling and romantic feelings and things like that and friendship and all of that. There's a kind of love that Jesus is actually calling us to. It's a biblical term, the Greek word agape love, which is a love that goes much deeper than any kind of erotic love or uh, friend, friend level love or anything like that. He is calling us to a kind of love that is almost like this a reckless abandonment for God and for people. He's calling us to this deep love. And the other thing that I want us to note is the kind of love that he's calling us to is in Jesus' mind, it's something that we are called to do not something we're called to feel. So the call here isn't to feel love for people. The call here isn't to feel love for God. The call here is to love God and to love people with all that you have in your life. It's an actionable term. Love God. How do I love God? With your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor. How do I love my neighbor? Just like you would love and care for yourself. Do it is what he's calling us to do. Show love. Demonstrate love. Do love. Don't just feel love. Now, I think we're all probably appropriately sunken down into our seat. Where do we go from here? Well, it gets worse before it gets better, okay? Um, I, I, I want to I address really quickly kind of why we struggle to do this. And I'm not going to spend too much time on this because this is really going to be teasing this out throughout our entire sermon series couple reasons why, if we could just be honest, why we struggle to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and why we struggle to love our neighbors ourselves is plain and simple, we are sinful, right? I know we're not supposed to talk about sin in church, but here we are. Um, 
It's not popular to talk about sin in church, but here we are. We're talking about sin in church, okay? So one of the reasons we don't love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and one of the reasons why we don't love our neighbors ourselves is because we are sinful people. Now, what is sin? Sin is essentially being so bent inwardly towards ourselves that we care more about ourselves than we care about anything else, right? So we are, the reason we don't love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, the reason we don't love our neighbors ourselves is because we care more about us than we care about God and more, about we, and more than we care about people. And sin has done that to us. Adam and Eve, whenever they fell in the garden and rebelled against God, that's what happened in them, and that's what is now passed on to us or imputed to us through their bloodline as their descendants. That we are born into this world with these desires that are bent inwardly towards ourselves. We are warped, misshaped people, if you will. We are shaped and turned inwardly on ourselves. That's how the theologian Augustine said it. He said that we are, sin bends us or curves us inward. Where we were meant to be curved in a way that was reflected out towards God and out towards people, now we are curved inwardly. So plain and simple, why do we struggle to love God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength? If we could just be honest for a minute, it's because we're sinners, right? We sin. We care more about ourselves than we care about God. We care more about ourselves than we care about people. And it's okay to be honest about that, it's, it's not okay to live in sin, but it's okay to be honest about that and just say, the reason that I don't do that is because I have sin in my life. Which is why it's important in the life of church that we have times to confess our sin and we have times to repent of our sin and we have relationships with other brothers and sisters, with our spouse and with our friends, whereby we can talk honestly and openly and regularly about our sin because our sin, if we're honest, is that primary thing that keeps us from loving God and loving people. So if we live in a culture, specifically even a church culture, in which we never talk about sin, then guess what we never grow in? Love. Love. A big part of what we're going to be talking about in this series is like we have to be honest with where we're at in our sin struggles. We just have to be honest. I have to say, man, the reason that I don't do this is because I don't want to. And the reason I don't want to is because I love me more than I love God. I said this a couple weeks ago when we were talking about being empowered by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Laid out this vision of what life in the kingdom could look like, empowered by the Spirit. Right? We were at Acts 2, 42 through 47, this beautiful picture of the early church, the prototype of the church, where they're doing all of these incredible things, serving and blessing one another and worshiping God. And I said, why don't we pursue that? And at the end of the day, we all agreed, it's because we don't really want to. We would rather live our compartmentalized lives with our normal self, our spiritual self, and our recreational self all completely intact and separate from one another. We don't want to live these whole complete lives where God owns every square inch of real estate in them. We want God to only own part of the real estate in our lives. And, but, but what the Holy Spirit wants to do is, of course, level and demolish every wall, every dividing wall that exists, not just in the church, but in our own lives. And he wants to come and he wants to invade our space and he wants to take over. We don't want him to do that though. The reason we don't want him to do that is because we want to stay in control. So sin. The next reason that we struggle to do this, to love God, is because if we're honest, again, we're shaped and formed by a culture that points us away from anything transcendent we're shaped and formed by a culture that points us away from anything of, of real depth, meaning, and substance. It points us away from love of God and others, and it directs us to love ourselves more than anything. The culture, the world in which we live directs our hearts away from God and away from loving people. Now listen, you say, no, 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 like our culture talks a lot about love and tolerance and things like that. Uh-uh. The kind of love that is even being put on display and put on offer in our culture is a self-serving love. Even the romantic love that you see in movies these days, these incredible love stories, very few of them are truly sacrificial and altruistic in nature. Most of the time, it's love them so that way you will feel loved by them. That's kind of what we're being trained. We're being trained in a way that says that love is really all about you. 
Love is about you being satisfied. Love is about you being fulfilled. Love is about you experiencing whatever it is that you believe that you ought to to be entitled to experience. That's what love is all about. And this is the, listen, from the movies that we watch to the television series that we watch to the advertisements that are on there to the music that's playing on the radio, the entire culture is conspiring. Now listen to me, friends. is conspiring against your heart to make you not love God and not love people but to love you. When you walk out of these doors, I'm not kidding you, when you walk out of these doors, this world, even this neighborhood, is perfectly curated to make you love you more than you love God and love people. The suburbs have been architected and designed to make you love God and make you love you and love yourself more than you love God and love people. That's why backyards are huge now and front yards are almost non-existent. That's why fences are 10 foot tall and they're no longer little chain leak fences in which you could see everyone's business. And we keep making them taller. It's like, can we get a canopy over this thing too? It's like, put like a biodome type bubble around my house or something like that. It tents during the day so people can't see in, but we can see out. Like, does I still want to be a little bit nosy? Like that's, if we could have it that way, I mean, watch, 20 years from now, biodome bubbles on everyone's house. They're just going to be... Somebody, we need to get in on that together. We could make a lot of money, I'm sure. Um, I know we got some engineers in this church. We should put our minds together. and We could fund the kingdom with it. Um, but no, it's, it's like the very culture. I mean, you drive down the road, the signs, everything is, hey, try this, eat this, do this. It will make you a better person. It will satisfy you. It will, it will, it will fill you. You will live in enjoyment. So the culture that we live in tries to point our hearts away from God. The movies, the stories, the advertisements, it all directs us towards ourselves. And we think this doesn't matter, but it does. Why? Because we are impressionable people. We think that just because we're Christian and because we have the Bible and because we have the Holy Spirit, that we can roll out into the world just kind of haphazardly, listen to the stories, read the books, watch the shows, watch the movies, and be utterly unaffected by it. But what we don't realize is that we are being deeply affected by it. I know some of you are up here afraid that I'm about to go all fundamentalist on you and tell you to unplug your TVs and go put them in the trash and burn all of your ACDC CDs. I would never do that, okay? Um, Especially not the ACDC part. I would be like, you know what? You can leave those neatly in a pile and I'll come collect them later. Um, No, I'm not gonna do that. But what I am gonna say is we need to be seriously aware of how deeply we're being shaped by the things in our culture. We need to be seriously aware of how deeply we're being shaped by sports culture and recreation culture and romance culture and food culture and consumer culture, right? We need to be deeply aware of all of that. The question isn't if we're being discipled. The question is what are we being discipled by? Even more than that, the question is what is shaping our discipleship? Like I said, this summer we're going to be speaking about that a lot and talking about how the church helps us in that. The third point that I have in, in, in closing is this. If we know that God is calling us to love us with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we know that he's calling us to love our neighbors, ourselves, and we know that we struggle to do it because of sin and the world in which we live, and even Satan himself conspires against us, then how are we ever gonna learn to be lovers of God and lovers of people in the way that God calls us to? How are we gonna learn to do it? Number one, God has given us the church. God has given us a community of people that are all formed around the same clear and compelling vision, which is to be lovers of God and lovers of people. God has given us the church to help shape our hearts and direct them toward him. God has given us a community, a family to belong to with people that are all committed to the same thing or we all should be committed to the same thing so that way you don't have to do this on your own. And the church, listen, the church is an important tool and means by which God uses to shape your hearts. We think God just gives us the Bible and he gives us the Holy Spirit and he says, go figure it out. That's not the, that's not the biblical story. God gives us his word, he gives us his spirit, and he gives us his people to shape us. He gives us his people. Because remember, even in the Old Covenant, we were talking about temple, Torah. Temple and Torah were given to what? A people. That people lived a communal lifestyle together in which they were constantly trying to work out how do we worship God and be faithful and obedient and, and walk in fidelity to that which he has called us to. All of those things that happens in the context of a spirit-formed, spirit-led people. 
So God gives us the church to teach us how to love God and others, and we're gonna be talking much more about that in this series. But most importantly, how do we ever gonna learn to do it? It's by looking to Christ in the gospel. We have to be consistently and habitually reminded of the gospel, the good news that God so loved us, amen, that he sent his only begotten son, that he spared no sense, that he emptied out heaven of his only son and he sent him on a life and death mission to save us, to rescue us from our sin, to fill us with the Holy Spirit, to place us in the community, to baptize us into the community that is the local church and to give us means of grace, to grow us, to strengthen us, to nourish us. All of these things God has done for us in Christ Jesus, but he has done it through the motivation of what? Love. I have to tell people this all the time, especially those that are like really, really entrenched in certain aspects of doctrine and dogma and everything like that. It's like, yes, God wants us to glorify him and enjoy him forever, but you have to understand that the way in which God relates to us is not by saying, hey, I just want your blind, naked, vulnerable, complete glorification of my name. He says, hey, I want you to know that I love you. And I want you to glorify me because I love you and I am a loving God. You were created out of an overflow of love. The Trinity existed in perfect harmony with one another. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, perfect in communion, loving one another. They didn't create mankind because they needed us to glorify them. They didn't create mankind because they wanted a bunch of fickle little dust and specks on this little blue planet called Earth to glorify them. He created us because he loves us. And he wants us to experience his love and walk in his love and celebrate his love and treasure his love and get this, glorify him because of his love, because he is worthy of it, because he is a loving God and we do not deserve it. That is the glory of God. God shows mercy where he should have shown wrath. God shows grace, right, where he should have given justice. God gives us all that we need and far more than we deserve, and he does it because he loves us. So however are we going to learn to be loving creatures? It's by consistently coming back to the gospel of love and grace. Our worship services are sculpted around this concept of the gospel of grace and love. Our home groups are sculpted around this concept of the gospel of grace and love. Our ministries are, are sculpted around this concept of the gospel of grace and love. Our statement out there, make the gospel unignorable. Why? Because we love God and we love people. This church, Providence, we want to be a church that forms disciples that love God and love people. Amen? But we know that we're not going to do that by just browbeating you and saying you need to do better and you need to try harder. We're going to do that by reminding you constantly that God loves you. As the scripture says, he loved us first, and so now we love him. We love because he loved. We love because we are loved. We sacrifice because God has sacrificed. We show unbridled devotion because God has shown unbridled devotion. We live lives of reckless abandon before God because God lives a life of reckless abandon towards us. We lay our lives down because he laid his life down. We love God, let me put it this way, with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength because that kind of love was demonstrated to us perfectly in the, in the cross and in the gospel. This time I wanna transition us to a time, um, I'm gonna move into a time uh, where we can reflect upon the gospel and the glory of God and his grace God has given us the sacrament of communion um, to remember that which we're saying we need to remember. God has given us the sacrament of communion, which is um, the broken body of Christ being reflected in the, in the, in the bread and the, the shed blood of Christ being reflected in the cup. This is a sacrament that Jesus instituted and gave to his disciples that we should observe frequently and regularly to remember the love of God for us in Christ Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 11, um, when Jesus was... Uh, Paul is recalling a night whenever Jesus was sitting with his disciples at the Last Supper, and it says um, that on the night whenever Jesus was betrayed, he was sitting around the table with his disciples, and he took the bread, and he held it up to his disciples, and he said, this is my body that has been broken for you. 
And it says, in the same way, he took the cup and he held it up to them and he said, and this is my blood that has been shed for you. And he commands his disciples, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And he says, and I want you to do this. And as often as you do this, you're proclaiming my death until I come back. So this sacrament that we're getting ready to enjoy with one another is a, is a means not only to remember, it's a means to proclaim, amen? We're remembering what Jesus has done for us and we're proclaiming what he has done for us every time that we gather around the communion table. And so this is something, you get the term sacrament, it's something that's very sacred to the church. This is a sacred practice. And so to that end, if you're, if you're not a Christian, I would encourage you to abstain from this practice. And it's not because we don't want you to partake in it. Um, we certainly do. It's just we, this is something for believers. And so if you were to partake of communion right now, it would simply just be out of order for you. Uh, what we would rather you do is if you've sat here and your heart has been stirred or provoked um, and you want to know more, we would, we would encourage you to take that time that everyone else is coming and receiving communion to sit quietly in your chair and maybe reflect upon what's been said. And I think we'll have a prayer of belief on the screen um, and you can pray that prayer. Um, and if you make that if you do that, then we, of course, we'd love to hear from you today. But for uh, the sake of, you know, we've got a couple of elders to serve today, and so we're only going to be serving communion at these two tables, and so instructions will just kind of, you guys can file down this aisle here in the middle, you guys can file down this aisle and just kind of wait along the sides and come and receive communion, and then come back around. So uh, let me pray for us, and you guys can stand and prepare to come receive from the Lord's table. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us. You have sent Christ to come and die in our place, to live the life that we could never live, to die the death that we should have died. God, you've done that for us. And Father, you did that because you love us. And so, Father, I pray that as we receive from your table, that we would receive with glad and generous hearts. God, that which you gave to us so freely, Lord God, that which we do not deserve, Lord, is your body and your blood being shed for us. I pray that we would receive it with gratitude and joy, thanksgiving and celebration. And Father, as we come to the table, I also pray that we would come sober-minded, knowing that it's not something that we've deserved. We have sin in our hearts and lives still. We have not loved you in the way that you have loved us. And so, God, we need your help. But when we come to this table with, repentant, with repentance in our hearts, where we have fallen short. But may we come with celebration knowing, Lord God, that you are a God who loves to forgive and has forgiven us so freely and generously in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Uh, one more quick bit of instruction. Here at the middle, if you need a gluten-free option, we have uh, gluten-free down here at the table, so just make sure you let that know. There, there will be a couple of gluten-free loaves right here at the center of the table. So thank you, guys. You can come forward and receive communion now.